welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Andrew McDonald, Associate Director of the Research Institute at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. And we're excited to have with us Dr. Doug Sweeney. Doug is the Dean of Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, and his role in his role, he provides strategic leadership and helps prepare men and women for faithful gospel ministry. Doug is a world-renowned scholar of American theologian Jonathan Edwards and is the author and editor of more than 20 books. But before we hear from Doug, let's go to Ed Stetzer, editor-in-chief of Outreach Magazine and the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. For those of you who don't know Andrew McDonald, we've had him fill in a few times, but we actually have a friendship here between Doug and Andrew. And actually, fun fact, uh, his uh, Doug's dad is my agent as well. Yes. So the Sweeney's are everywhere in, <laughs> in Christian work and practice. But uh, Doug, we're so glad to have you here on the conversation and also glad that you're at Beeson Divinity School. He's the uh, dean, succeeded Timothy George, who was my theological mentor. And it's also fascinating to have a Lutheran leading Beeson Divinity School in Alabama. So you're keeping, you're keeping the folks hopping down there. So thanks for your good work. You're welcome. Great to be with you guys. Okay. So you've written some some in and around the space that we're going to talk about today, and you've written specifically an article for the Gospel Coalition uh, called We Need Reformation This Year. It begins, the church stands in need of redemption once again. Our pastors and our people need revival. And so, and this was in 2022. So this is, because, you know, we, you could say you could have said that in 2019, you could have said that in 2017. Why this year? Why this call? What's going on that calls you to call for this kind of change? Well, it seems to me and a lot of other uh, Christian servants that all too many of our pastors and denominational leaders uh, are suffering these days. Uh, I think our churches have taken a beating in the last few years. All the polls indicate uh, that generally speaking, attendance is in decline. Obviously, there are exceptions to that rule, but that's the rule. Uh, Our young people are becoming disaffected Uh, for several different reasons. Part of the reason they're disaffected is they feel like their leaders uh, lack the kind of spiritual and theological and even moral maturity that they're looking for in leaders. Uh, Our seminaries are ailing. Uh, I I think generally speaking, uh, there's some malaise and there's uh, a lot of decline taking place in our churches. And I think we need genuine spiritual revitalization these days. We need a special movement from the Lord. Seems to be uh, a pivot point. And, you know, I've been one doing research for, you know, maybe 15 years presenting research where I kept saying, you know, stop overstating evangelicalism's collapsing or dying or whatever. And I'm now one whose who's alarm is, is elevated and whose concern is escalated. We're at a key pivot moment. And one of the things that seemed to have happened is you know, I, I was doing the Barna, the Barna National Pastor event. I forget what it was called, to be perfectly honest. And one of the things David Kinneman said there was, um, what we learned in the last few years is something that the kids say to one another. Um, and my daughters, I've heard one daughter say this to the other daughter, you know, he's just not that into you. Kind of saying that maybe they're not as interested as you might hope. Well, I think one of the things that David said at this event was to pastors and churches, what we found out in the last few years is they're just not that into you, that there's been a substantive failure of discipleship. There's been, people have been discipled away by their cable news and spiritually formed by their social media. Uh, I think everyone feels that, but you also want to point a path forward to make that better. Uh, so 
for us, if those of us who are feeling it, is there hope? Uh, you're a historian. Is there is there a past that points us to a better future? There is hope. Uh, there's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who, who told his apostles in Matthew 16 that the church is indefectible. So I have a lot of hope for the future of the church. Uh, I think we need to do some serious discipleship work in some pretty basic ways in the near term uh, in the evangelical movement and particularly in North America. Uh, I think your question uh, invited me to get into a little church history. I don't need to Please overdo do. that, but clearly. No, no, that's why we have you here. Clearly in the history of Christianity, there is such a th as special seasons of revival and renewal in the church. We serve a God uh, who is ready to respond to prayer uh, and to use his people if they're faithful and humble and clean vessels fit for his service uh, to do the work that needs to be done. Uh, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, it, it is true that the church will survive and thrive. Uh, whether or not American evangelicals are part of the solution. But I'm one of those guys who, maybe it's my age, maybe it's the fact that I'm a church history teacher, but I don't want to give up on the word evangelical, let alone the evangelical movement. I think God has used the evangelical movement historically in some very powerful ways to build up his church and bring people to Christ and edify the saints. And I'm trying to get people to tap into the best of our evangelical church history for sources for renewal in the present day. Hmm. But one of the big problems that we see with that is that how often people use uh, the idea of change, the idea of revival. I mean, it's so common. Every, everybody's calling for revival constantly. One of the things that you make have, make note of in this piece, and you've, you've talked about everywhere, is uh, like the, the importance of revival or reformation as like a singular event, as like this really important major event, not something that constantly happens. So why did you feel the need for to call for a reformation or revival now? Like, what is the what is the thing that's guiding this now as opposed to five years ago, ten years ago, twenty sure. years ago? Yeah, well, let me say first, uh, not to not to push back or anything, but um, I'm a Lutheran, and in my church circles, we don't talk about revival a lot. That's true. Uh, yeah. So it it is true that in some people's circles, that's an overused word. Uh, with the guys I hang out with, it's it's not used very much at all. And in fact, it's so underused that sometimes I feel like we, we don't even believe that God operates in the world in supernatural ways anymore. And I'm trying to remind people in, in tribes like mine that we serve a God who does uh, operate in the world in those ways. But, you know, in recent years, uh, you know, there's been some horrible things that have happened in our society. Uh, there's been some horrible things that Christians, even Christian leaders have perpetrated on other people in our society. Uh, we're in the midst of some pretty difficult culture wars. Of course, the culture wars are not new, but they've heated up in an unprecedented way in the last few years. And they've heated up to such a degree that all too often, more often than not, in my experience, it's the priorities and the language of the culture wars that shape the ways in which Christians think about their place in the world and their role as believers in society. Now, I wanna say the culture wars are important. Of course, there, there are ways in which Christians ought to be involved uh, in society and culture and politics, et cetera. But I'm hoping for the renewal uh, of basic, genuine Christian discipleship in the church. I want Jesus and the gospel and the Bible to fill people's minds, to shape people's lives, 
to shape the ways in which they operate in the world, I don't want those things to be marginalized by the language and the priorities of the culture wars. Mm -hmm. And I think they are being marginalized for all too many Christians by the language and the priorities of the culture wars. And it's making Christians into kind of secular right-wing Republicans or left-wing Democrats or whatever the case may be, uh, more than their serious, committed, genuine disciples of Jesus these days. Yeah, that's not exciting, though, Doug. That's, that's, I mean, that's okay, but, you know, we've got a whole podcast. And so basically, if we just say disciple people better, but it seems to be that's the lesson that we have to take. One of the lessons, not the only lesson, that we have to take over the last two years. There seemed to have been a pretty shallow discipleship for people to be so caught up in these things. I mean, we, and we see, we've seen some pretty shocking things in the name of Jesus that seem to be divorced from the the work and person of Christ and the disciple, uh, the spiritual formation of the church. So I want to deeply agree with you and I want to press you for more on this. Because again, what you uniquely bring to our conversation is you are an historian. You mentioned your Lutheran LCMC as a, as a evangelical Lutheran denomination. I've had the privilege of speaking at your meeting and, and appreciate their passion. It's Lutheran congregations on mission for Christ. So how do we have a mission-shaped discipleship that redirects from the train wreck that we're maybe in or headed towards or maybe still tumbling through. So so, so help us, because I, I, I agree deeply, but when I say this, I think people sometimes, their eyes glaze over and people roll their eyes. Basic Christian discipleship, how and why? Well, I think when people lack excitement for basic Christian discipleship, when their eyes glaze over, that's a symptom of the major problem I'm trying to address here. Come on. You know, I think it, if you're more excited uh, by watching CNN and Fox News than you are by reading the Bible and going to church, that's a big problem. Uh, and there's nothing terribly sexy in a worldly sort of way about the kind of discipleship I'm advocating. Mm -hmm. uh, it's basic Christianity. It's devoting ourselves to careful study of Scripture, uh, to extended seasons of prayer, uh, to regular fellowship with other believers, to regular church attendance. Uh, to serious care uh, for the poor and the needy in the world. Uh, it, it's serious attendance to the things that Jesus and the apostles tell us are supposed to characterize the lives of Christians, but that characterize the lives of too few Christians these days, precisely because we're so enamored of the media, the culture wars, we're so addicted uh, to our favorite tweeters and so on, that we don't leave any time in our lives anymore. Uh, for doing the things that Jesus actually asked us to do. But so so you talk about in one of in one of your articles, you talk about specifically one of the pieces you you mentioned there about biblical literacy and what you see as a declining biblical literacy in the church, especially. And I think a lot of pastors would that would resonate with a lot with them, them thinking, I'm preaching on something and I'm finding out that just basic biblical literacy, uh, isn't nearly what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, you give, in one of your articles, you give a list of Jonathan Edwards' uh, examination questions that he gives to his students, and you wonder whether or not today regular church attendees would, would be able to answer sure. even one of the questions. Um, so within an age of encroaching biblical literacy, um, how do pastors speak into that? How, what are the practices that you've seen successful, especially not only as, as a church historian throughout history, but also as the Dean of Beeson, yeah. as you're training pastors, 
what encouragement, what practical advice do you give them to help fight biblical literacy sure. as a problem in discipleship? Well, we emphasize, we emphasize the central importance of uh, preaching and teaching the Bible in congregational ministry, doing it in a detailed way, doing it in a sustained way. Uh, we want the people who are doing it to be able to read the Bible uh, in the original languages. We want them to be unapologetic and yet winsome and compelling in the way they try to persuade lay people uh, to be involved themselves uh, in serious discipleship. Of course, discipleship uh, biblically is a process of learning from Jesus, learning about God and learning about his will and learning about the ways in which he wants us to live our lives from the master Jesus. And you just can't do that without some spiritual discipline, without some careful, um, devoted, detailed, even painstaking attention uh, to what God tells us about himself and his will for us uh, in scripture. And those things, frankly, let's be honest, there aren't a lot of churches anymore uh, that preach and teach the Bible in that kind of way uh, uh, over and over again in ways that are really yielding spiritual maturity uh, on the part of their people. That the temptation today is to make people feel okay uh, for not being uh, very serious about their discipleship. And we paid the price in the last few years. Um, what then, you know, I remember when I went to, when I, when I went to Beeson Divinity School, I did a, I did a demon there years ago, early on, I think it was in the first class um, or second class, maybe. Um, the, specifically, we engaged the Olford Institute and I learned a lot about verse by verse expository preaching, shaped a lot of the way that I preach. Um, we see that and that's something that, that, uh, that I teach and more. Is that kind of the thing, what you're calling for or what kind of preaching can be that kind of spiritually shaping preaching? Because a lot of the data we see at Life Research is that most people's spiritual growth is actually impacted by their preaching, but shaped by their personal engagement in scripture and devotion as well. So talk to me about the kind of preaching you're calling for, and then talk to me about how that fits in the context of the spiritually shaped life. Yeah, I'm not calling for any one okay. method of preaching. Uh, I'm a fan of expository preaching, but of course I'm a church historian and I study people who preached in different ways than that. Um, right. One person about whom I've written a lot is, is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was not a verse by verse preacher. He was taught by uh, many early modern Protestants uh, who taught uh, pastors, not least the, his Puritan predece predecessors, to preach Bible doctrine right. uh, and to do it in a whole Bible canonical sort of way. And I think sometimes preaching like that can be very helpful as well. But just helping people understand God's will as revealed to us in the Bible and helping people understand their place in God's providential governance of the world, in the history of redemption that's talked about in the Bible, uh, in the drama of redemption uh, that God wants them to play a role in, I think can not only give people a better understanding of who God is and what God's will is for their life, but can shore up their confidence in, their belief in the God who reveals uh, what he intends to do in and through history and, and how he wants to use us as part of the history of redemption, part of the drama of redemption. I don't think if all you ever do is preach verse by verse uh, with a kind of a, a, a moral and application at the end uh, of a sermon, you're giving people a sense as to where they fit into the, the sweep of God's redemptive work in the world and, and how God wants them to be plugged in uh, to this work in the world. And I think part of the part of the struggle today is that 
It's not just that people don't know enough about the Bible. It's they don't know enough about what God has planned for them uh, and their participation in his, mm -hmm. in his work. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Have, have, as an historian, have you seen this? Have we been in moments? I know history doesn't repeat itself, but it does tend to rhyme. Have we been in moments when we've gotten distracted, when we've gotten divided? And have we, have we been in similar places? And what's gotten us out of those really problematic moments? The answer is yes. Well, we've been in those places a lot of times before, uh, probably most famously, at least to Protestants. We've been in those places in the 16th century in the days of the Reformation. And we've been in those places again in the 18th century, the days of the revivals that we sometimes call the, the Great Awakening. And in both of those periods of time, God used some pretty basic things, uh, a strong emphasis on being clear about the gospel message for people, and a strong emphasis on teaching people redemptive history uh, as narrated in the Bible, uh, along with public meetings uh, where people are encouraged to uh, repent of sin together and to pray uh, for renewal in their own lives and in their own churches. These are the things that over and over again in church history, God has used to revitalize his people. In that same line, one of the, one of the pieces in, 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 in your article that really hit me was your quoting of the Puritans when they, when you talk about how we have not weaned our affections of the world. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's such a great picture, but then help us understand, bring the Puritans into the 21st century for us a little bit. What does it mean to wean our affections of the world and to turn them back to the gospel in terms of these daily disciplines that you, you're, you're emphasizing? Yeah, I don't want to sound uh, like I'm more down on Christians than I really am. Sure. <laughs> uh, it, generally speaking, I think a lot of people, particularly the kinds of people who listen to this podcast, are trying their best to be faithful to the Lord and, and do the right thing in, in pastoral ministry. So please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. But yeah, I mean, the reality is just look around you at the evangelical movement. Most people in most of our churches know a lot more about the culture wars. They know a lot more about Hollywood movies. They know a lot more about sports than they know about God, than they know about the Bible. And the way they spend their time and spend their money seems to suggest that they care more about those things than they care about the Lord uh, and following the Lord in their daily lives. Now, lots of them, if they were here with us, would say, but that's, that's not true. I mean, I really do care about God and about uh, obeying him and following his will uh, in my life. Uh, and I guess what I want to say is, well, if those are your priorities, I mean, let's work together on acting like those are our priorities. Uh, and let's, let's even be known less in public for uh, what we stand for politically, what we stand for on the kind of hot secular issues of the day, as important as they are, then we're known for the love of God in our lives and the way in which the love of God daily shapes our practices, shapes the way we steward our time and steward our money. I mean, you brought up a really important dysfunction, I find, that's in common. I mean, I feel it in my own life. We, we see it even in, in Scripture and the Apostle Paul, this kind of disjunction between what we say and then what's actually true. And I think most people say, do you love God? Do you love the church? Do you love the like your neighbor? Most Christians are going to respond with yes. But at the same time, we can feel what you're saying. I, I think we can feel a draw, a love to the world. Um, so I agree with you. It's not about beating up on the church, but 
practically helping, how do people kind of rescue their love? I guess is kind of if we were trying to be sympathetic in the way we're phrasing it, how can church leaders help their people rescue their love from the rescue their affections? from the things of this world that seems to have kind of latched on and grabbed them and in some ways uh, trapped them. Yeah, when I was a young uh, adolescent, young man, uh, I kind of chafed against some of the legalism of the evangelical movement. uh, And I resisted it when people who were older than I was and authority figures in my life, either in church or in school somewhere, uh, wanted to insist with me that I developed disciplines, regular habits of devotion and scripture reading and prayer and doing good works uh, in the world. In fact, one of the reasons, frankly, I was drawn to Lutheranism is it kind of freed me up from some of the legalism that I had grown up with. So you could drink pretty much. (laughs) Okay, sorry. (laughs) And and frankly, the older I've gotten, I I think the more I've changed on these things. Interesting. Uh, I've struggled as a as a father, a church person, a teacher, a preacher, a seminary professor, uh, to encourage young people to have a little discipline in their lives. Of course, I'm a Lutheran. I don't want to make legalists out of anybody. Sure. But I think we we lack the fortitude these days that's required to live as though what we profess really is true. And um, I'd like for us together as pastors and preachers and, and, and teachers these days to find winsome, non-legalistic ways to help people again learn to have a regular devotional life, learn to have uh, regular scripture reading in the home. I mean, just think about most Christian families these days. Their kids' lives have just been taken over yeah. by extracurricular activities, athletics, music, dance, whatever it is. These things are just assumed to be the things that we spend most uh, of our time with our kids on. Now, my son was an athlete and a musician. You know, I don't want us to overreact to that or be ridiculous in the way we respond to that. But I want us to encourage families and teach families, teach fathers and mothers about uh, how best to raise their kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, how to read the Bible together as families again, uh, how to teach your kids how to pray. Uh, how to talk to your kids about some of the really difficult issues they're facing these days in school and among their peer groups. So it's not rocket science, really. It's sort of basic traditional Christianity, but somehow basic traditional Christianity needs to be made cool (laughs) again (laughs) in the lives of our people. And and we got to get creative and concerted in our efforts to make it cool again. There's your T-shirt right there. That is a T-shirt. Basic there. traditional Christianity. You know, and I, I, so I'm actually officing now that I'm on sabbatical from Wheaton for the next year or so, doing a couple of writing projects, and I'm officing in the church building where you grew up, where you ran around as a kid. So it's 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 now called High Point Wheaton, and um, your dad was the youth pastor. I don't know, maybe you weren't born yet, but your dad was the youth pastor there a long time ago under another name. But they, and just to be, be blunt, that's what they had 50, 60 years ago when your dad was the youth pastor there. They had Sunday Sunday school and Sunday morning, they had Sunday night and, uh, and they had church training and they had Wednesday night and they had all these things. And my church, like so many other, I would say, wonderful evangelical churches, we've streamlined things and, and more. And now we probably can get somebody for an hour and 15 minute service on Sunday and hoping for a home group during the week. So... 
I mean, is the answer to kind of go back to the way it was when you were a kid? Is there some other answer? I mean, I, again, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. I, I'm, I'm trying to ask how, what does this look like? How, what are you teaching your students, your ordinands? What are you teaching people at Beeson? And what should I be teaching people at the Wheaton College School of Mission, Ministry and Leadership so that their churches, so they can lead their churches better in these ways? What needs to change? Yeah, some things were better. 50, 60 years ago in the period of time you're talking about. I think uh, our, most of our laity were more biblically literate, spent more of their time on uh, uh, living out their, their callings as Christians, uh, practiced discipleship more regularly than most Christians do today. But of course, some things were worse back then as well. Christians were blind to all kinds of things uh, uh, with respect to uh, the culture wars back then, and respect to uh, racism and the way women were treated and so on. That, I think we have improved on over time. And frankly, in the 2020s, I mean, we're just in such a different world, such a different context, such a different environment. It'd be naive to tell people, let's just go back and do things the way we did them in the 50s and, and the 60s. Uh, but I, I would like to recover somehow in a way that works uh, in the present. And I don't have a method to, to sell anybody, uh, but I'd like to, to work together uh, to encourage individuals, families, congregations in these ways again, and to shore up their faith in the work of God in the world and the, the ways in which history is, is tending and God's uh, revealed will for his church, and then encourage people to act like what we believe about these things is, is really true. So I know I, I feel like you're asking me for a method. I don't really have a kind of a no, simple method that, that I, everybody's supposed yeah. to use. But um, it, I'm, I'm asking for something just more simple and more basic than that yeah. in whatever method you want, right. in whatever way you think will work yeah. uh, in your community, let's practice basic discipleship. Yeah, no, I think as, and as you're looking as an historian across 2000 years of history, what encourages me is that we've been in these kind of messes before and we have made it through and out of these messes. I've never been in this kind of mess before. I mean, it's been... You know, I think the last time we had this kind of cultural convulsion was the 60s. Um, and I think, you know, religiously, when it comes to religiosity and evangelicalism, this is a crisis that may be longer in the making from the 60s. And so so that's why we wanted to have an historian on. You, 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 you wrote, our churches have taken a special kind of beating in recent years. Um, and, and I kind of wonder, did they, these... Did we expose what was there? Did this create it? Is it a mix of both? Uh, and again, we don't have the benefit of looking back as historians yet, but just give us your observation of what you're seeing the moment we're in right now. What's going on? Yeah, I think we clearly have exposed um, some spiritual and moral immaturity on the part of a lot of evangelical Christians. Uh, it has been exacerbated and encouraged by some of the things going on in our society. You know, I don't want to get political on your podcast, but there's some things going on in American political life. Can I just say, we don't mind you going political on our podcast. You, what you say is what you say. So feel free. Yeah. Well, I mean, for my own for my own ministry reasons, you know, I, I, I don't <laughs> want to be co-opted and made to be mostly a politician yeah, totally. uh, in interviews like this, because I, yeah. I don't think the solution is with my team winning the culture wars or my okay. candidates winning office. I think, I think our obsession about that stuff is a symptom of a huge problem in the evangelical mm -hmm. movement. I think we're so worried about having uh, influence in the secular society that we're misusing our time. We have misplaced priorities. Uh, success 
Evangelicals, I guess, maybe just aren't spiritually and morally mature enough to handle the kind of success uh, that evangelicals have experienced at numerous points uh, in the history of Christianity. And maybe it'll be best for us if we if we experience some failure. Maybe that'll send us back into some of these basic pr- practices of Christian discipleship. But that leads into your your. I mean, you you key on this phrase of costly discipleship, right. and I think a lot of people that that word costly carries a lot of weight for people in different ways. And so, help us understand what do you mean by that cost? Is that cost individually? Is that organizationally? I mean, you lead a seminary. Um, that uh, there there are political things at play with seminaries and and Christian organizations and institutions that you have to care about those things. Or are you talking about individually in terms of costs? What what is the the cost part of costly discipleship? Yeah. Well, most importantly, it it requires us to to lose our lives for Christ, to take up our crosses every day and follow Jesus. That's the most important thing to say about the cost of discipleship. But very practically, uh, faithful costly discipleship costs time, costs money, costs power. Uh, It requires us to live our lives in the way of the cross, following Jesus and devoting as much of our time as we're able to devote, as much as our money as we're able to devote, spending our lives and whatever power and authority the Lord has given us to spend on the things of Jesus, rather than on accumulating Uh, wealth and power and privilege for ourselves. And the ways in which evangelicals are depicted is often unfair, I think, in the media these days, but it's not completely unfounded because all too often we act as though the things of the world are more important to us than the things of the Lord. That makes a a shift in, of course, the way we think. And, And I would say that a lot of people who listen to the podcast for pastors and church leaders and what they're hearing from people is and I, and I think rightfully so. But if 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 we can just claim this cultural moment, we can push back on the secularization and the liberalization of our culture, and probably in a way that historically, I mean, you know, right now when we look at religiosity in the world, you know, the U.S. kind of stood out there with Ireland and Poland and and the U.S. is this uniquely religious context uh, that might be able to push back up against some of these secularization and liberalization. Uh, is that something that we should just abandon that possibility in the public square how how do we how do we engage this moment because it seems to me part of what you're saying is we've got to accept and engage from the margin accept the marginalization and accept from the margins am i am i misreading this and help me to see more clearly well i i would like for us to push back against secularization but i don't think the way to do that is to invest most of our time and energy and money in secular kind of culture wars and political activity. You know, that's not a healthy way to push against secularization. It's a way to promote a different kind of secularization, the secularization of the political right rather than the political left or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And I'd like for us to push against secularization to, you know, run the risk here of saying the same thing over and over again, but it's the message I want to convey uh, by focusing on basic Christian discipleship and using Uh, The language, the themes, uh, the revelation about God, the the revelation about the nature of history and God's will for our lives revealed to us in the Bible uh, to engage the secular culture, rather than getting co-opted by the secular culture to such a degree that we don't even spend much time anymore 
thinking yeah. about following Jesus and reading the Bible. That's mm. good. Mm. I, then transitioning to, I mean, you, you've talked about how you want to give this view of, of the church that's that's very positive as well. It's not just, here's everything that's wrong. And so kind of ending, what is it that is inspiring, enc what's encouraging, what's optimistic about the church that that has you continuing? A lot of people have left the 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 term evangelical it doesn't they don't feel like it it belongs to them that it refers to them anymore but as you said right at the outset this is something that's really important to you that you hold on to it that you think it's redeemable so then looking at it what is it about it what is it about evangelicals or the church more broadly that is encouraging you mm -hmm. today what's what's driving your optimism as you kind of look out what are we doing well i think evangelicals do better than most other christians um, at what i sometimes call um helping people with the subjective dimension of the Christian faith. I don't want to get too obscure here, but if you think about the practices of the Christian faith in terms of uh, those that fit in the objective dimension versus those that fit in the subjective dimension, and when we talk about the objective dimension, we're talking about the things of God that are true, uh, whether or not, or no matter how much we uh, believe they're true or feel like they're true in the moment, they're just true objectively. And then we talk about the subjective dimension is including things that have to do with my appropriation and application of the things of God in my own life, the making personal of uh, the objective truths of the Christian faith. I think evangelicals uh, are better at the subjective dimension of the Christian faith than almost any other group. And I think God, even today, all around the world, is doing things uh, in and through the evangelical uh, movement to bring people to Christ. Uh, to build up his church. We don't see a lot of it in the United States today, but when we pay attention to what's going on in the church around the world, we do see a lot of it. And then more generally speaking, uh, I'm in churches all the time and a lot of them are doing pretty well. You know, I don't want to be down on all churches and all Christians. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about uh, general trends yeah. that I'm worried about. Um, and then again, you know, I trust, I trust in what Jesus has said about the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, I believe that's true, and I believe um, it's worth spending our lives uh, in the service of the church and the advancement of the reign of God in the world, uh, and I think that's a better way to steward our times than, than uh, investing in too much uh, in secular power and influence uh, and success. The article we've been discussing is We Need Reformation This Year, written earlier this year by Doug Sweeney. Thankful for him being a guest with us. You can learn more about him and Beeson Divinity School at beesondivinity.com. Proud graduate as well. Thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And as always, if you find our conversation helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments to leave us a review wherever you download your podcast. It'll help other ministry leaders find and benefit from the content. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.